0: I want to talk to you about the resurrection, and on the cross, Good Friday, Satan truly thought that he won an incredible victory, but little did he know that he fell into God's millennia-old plan. He actually did and accomplished exactly what God wanted him to accomplish and what Satan had been scheming for literally thousands of years backfired in one of the greatest moments in human history. Um, On Friday, somebody asked me, which moment was greater, the death or the resurrection of Jesus? And I'm like, "Uh, well, without the resurrection, the death is meaningless, and without the death, the resurrection doesn't even make sense. So um, I don't know. But altogether, the death and the resurrection of Jesus is the most important event in human history that has ever happened. And Satan wanted to thwart God's plans, and something happened on the cross that he did not see coming. So here's what I want to do. I want to show you Satan's failed schemes, and God's marvelous victory. And what I wanna do is I wanna pull back the curtain of time and I wanna go back with you into the garden and I want you to watch with me as this story unfolds because there's a thread in scripture that sometimes we don't always pick up and I wanna show you this thread and I wanna show you how how the resurrection of Jesus was such an incredible, momentous, monumental act in human history. And so let's go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. If you don't know your Bible very well, the Garden of Eden from Genesis, God made man and woman, he put them in a garden and there's something called the fall. The fall is when humanity sinned. And when humanity sinned, we were separated from God permanently and forever. And unless God was going to do something to fix it, we had a serious issue. But something weird happened in the garden. Satan was in the garden. Now, I've often read the book of Genesis and thought, why is he in the garden? This, like, doesn't make sense to me. And I'm going to read to you a passage of Scripture from Revelation 12. And here's what it says. Woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And so in Genesis, Genesis when the devil shows up in the garden, here's his agenda. He hates God. And he hates image bearers. That's mankind because we bear God's image. We look like him and we sound like him and it's this weird reflection of God. And so he hates us and his objective is to kill and destroy us. That's his objective. And he comes down in great wrath because he knows he only has a limited amount of time. But then after they sin, God looks at Satan and he makes a promise to him that is gonna change the way he sees the future. He makes a promise to Satan that there will be a descendant of Eve, who obliterates him, who crushes him, who destroys him, who takes him out. Now, you and I, we have the Bible, so we can read back. We have 66 books, the Old Testament, the New Testament. We can read the story. He had none of it. He didn't know who it was. He didn't know who it was going to be. He didn't know when it was going to happen. And from this point on, Satan had one agenda, and that would be to crush the descendant of Eve before that descendant crushes him. And I want to show you this story and watch how it culminates on the cross. The very first story after the Garden of Eden in the fall is Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel are the sons or the descendants of Adam and Eve. And you may know the story because Cain, what did he do to Abel? He killed him, right? And so the, in the New Testament, we actually get to see a little bit of what was going on behind the scenes and what inspired this. First John 3 says that Cain was inspired by the evil one. And then in John eight forty four 44, we see Jesus says that Satan was a murderer from the beginning, meaning all the way back to the very first murder when Cain killed Abel, that this was satanically inspired. Now, why is it that Satan would want to bring murder into this family? Because he doesn't know who the descendant that's going to crush him is going to be. And so he starts building chaos and arguments and anger and rage and malice inside of the descendants of Eve because he wants to kill the descendant before the descendant kills him. You fast forward to the time of Moses, and and again, Satan does not know what's going on. He's looking at the prophecies, maybe. He's looking at the words that are revealed to to the people of Israel. He's watching things happen, but he doesn't know who and when. But here's what he knows. By the time Moses was born, um, it was a 400-year prophecy that was being fulfilled. And he was deeply concerned that one of these Jewish kids was going to be the descendant that would crush him. And as soon as he got wind of this, he inspired Pharaoh to kill all of the newborn babies. In fact, the midwives were commanded by him to execute them the moment they came out of the womb. Why? Because he is constantly trying to kill the descendant of Eve before that descendant kills him. And this narrative just keeps unfolding, and we find in the New Testament that pagan religions are actually demonically and satanically motivated. So there's this religion, uh, worship of a god named Moloch. It was rampant throughout the time of Israel in the Old Testament, rampant. And here was one of their primary practices. They They would require that families offer their firstborn children as a sacrifice to Moloch and the fire. And this religion kept creeping its way into Israel. In fact, King Solomon built temples to this God in Israel. It just kept finding its way. And why was Satan motivating, inspiring these kind of weird, dark religions? Because he wanted to crush the descendant of Eve before the descendant of Eve crushed him. And he's vicious, and he is going to make this happen. Now, around the time of Jesus' birth, let's just be straight. Did the angels know who Jesus was at that time? Yes, was the plan starting to come into like, clarity? Was Satan finally understanding? I mean, the angels were declaring from heaven. The cosmos understood what was going on. Even pagan astrologers, the three wise men, 900 miles away, figured out just by looking at the signs that something big was happening. And so by the time Jesus is born, everybody in the spiritual realm knows that this is the one, this is the descendant who's going to crush Satan. And what does Satan want to do to Jesus? Crush him first who's going to get there first. And so we find Pharaoh or Herod. I mean, um, Herod has all of the children 2 years and under in Bethlehem murdered because Satan is smart and Satan understands the prophecies and where the Messiah was going to come from. So he puts this in Satan or in Herod's heart. And you may say, Michael, how do you know that he did that? In Revelation chapter 12 verse 2, listen to what said. She was pregnant, was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And the dragon, by the way, who's the dragon? Satan, not Jesus, Satan. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. So Satan, the picture here is he's chomping at the bed. He's waiting for for the Messiah, the descendant of Eve to be born. He wants to devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Uh, The spirit, um, right before Jesus starts his earthly ministry, takes Jesus out into the wilderness. He fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. Satan takes him to the top of the temple. And again, what is Satan's objective with Jesus? To kill him, to crush him before Jesus crushes Satan. And here's what Satan says to Jesus. If you are the son of God, playing his ego, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And his objective was to destroy Jesus before Jesus had an opportunity to destroy him. The Pharisees. Jesus makes it very clear that the Pharisees are filled with Satan. They they are motivated and inspired by their father, the devil. Satan even asked Jesus, apparently, um, if he could have Peter, Simon Peter, one of his 12. Jesus looks at Peter and says, Satan asked me if he could sift you like wheat. And apparently Jesus said, no, take Judas. And so we find in the story of Judas, this is what happens in Luke chapter 22, verse 3. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. And we all know that Judas betrayed Jesus, ultimately leading to his death and his capture and his being crucified. Now, I want you to imagine, you for millennia have been trying to crush the descendant of Eve before he could crush you. And you may think on this side of history, Well, didn't he know? There seems to be no evidence that he understood because tooth and nail, he was fighting to get Jesus on the cross. And so what we find here is, I just imagine a story where Jesus is sitting on the cross, hanging, writhing in pain, and Satan thinks he has won. He, in his mind, thinks, I crushed him before he could crush me. The greatest deception in all of human history. But there is one Thing that Satan apparently did not know—a mystery that was hidden and revealed to the Apostle John in the Book of Revelation. I want you to read this with me and just hear this. And it's this little, little statement that tells us so much about what was really going on. It says, "And all who dwell on the earth will worship it." That's the beast, uh, a satanically motivated person at the end times. Everybody whose name has not been written. So now we're going to find. There's a book. The book was written in a certain period of time, and it has a certain name. And I want you to hear this. The book was written before the foundations of the world. So the book was written before Genesis, before creation. The book is as old as time. And the book has a name. And here is the name of the book written before the foundations of the world. And the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. So that before creation... The intention and the plan of God was to execute the Lamb of God, who is Jesus Christ. Now, Satan apparently did not understand this because he thought if I could kill him before he kills me, I win. But what he didn't apparently understand was that this was the intention of God the Father the entire time. And so he's writhing on the cross. Satan is just so happy that this is happening. And then the moment he dies, Satan realizes, oh no, this is not good. Good Friday was very, very, very bad for Satan. And then Saturday comes. 1 Peter 3.18. Christ suffered once for sins. How many times does he suffer? Once. The righteous for the unrighteous. By the way, are you the righteous or the unrighteous? unrighteous? Unrighteous, good job. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Now, before I read on, There are some of you who who think that Jesus, when he died on Saturday, he went to hell and suffered more. The Bible does not teach that in any way, shape, or form. Jesus accomplished on the cross, on the cross, everything that needed to be accomplished. And right before he died, he said, it is finished, meaning the payment for sin is totally 100% complete. And here's the question that I've always wondered, what did he do on Saturday? And here's what I want to tell you. For Jesus, Saturday was a great day. For Satan, it was a terrible day because all of his plots and schemes backfired in such an enormous way that he could have never anticipated. Listen to what happens on Saturday. In which he, Jesus, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, at this point, you're like, what, right? I'm gonna explain it to you. I'm gonna make it real easy, okay? Proclaimed literally means preached here. So Jesus is preparing a sermon. And I, this is the way I think of it. Jesus has a three-day sermon. You thought I preached long? Wait till you hear Jesus preach on Saturday. Long sermon, okay? So Jesus is preaching, and he's preaching to the spirits in prison. Now, there's three translations or interpretations of this that no matter how you slice it, it's awesome either way. And so the first interpretation is this, is that Jesus preached... To those who had rejected him. So um, before Jesus ascended into heaven, here's what would happen when you die. You went to there's this place, the Bible calls it Abraham's side. And so um, on one side of this place is where people who are getting ready for hell are gonna go. If you've rejected God, that's where you go. And then there's another side of it, which is a good side. You wanna go to the good side. If you love God and have trusted in him, that's where you go. Okay? And so here's the idea that, that Jesus went into Abraham's side and he proclaimed to all the people who had rejected him and said, Ha! I win, you lose. Yes. Now suffer through an entire three-day sermon. <laughs> right? That's that's what I imagine happened. I think that's like the more fun route. So the next option is that he went to angels who were in prison. So the Bible teaches of a group of angels that were so vile and so disgusting that God actually put them in prison early because they were such troublemakers. Okay. And so this is the second opport- like trans- interpretation is Jesus went to these angels in prison and said, ha. You lose, now you've really lost. You guys are toast, I win, right? Either way, the message is the same. Who wins? Jesus, good. Option number three is that he goes over to the saints who are on the good side of Abraham's side, who who have trusted in him, and he looks at them and says, y'all, because he's Southern, right? Y'all, we win. We win. Like it's done. It's accomplished. We are victorious. Nothing, nothing, nothing can stop this. And that's what happened on Saturday. Now, meanwhile, on Saturday, I want you to put yourself in the disciples' shoes because what's happening there? They are broken. They are petrified. They are disappointed. They are sad. They are doubting everything that happened to them over the past three years. They are wondering, why did I waste my time? Was I uh, just duped by this Jesus guy? And it's so sad. You wonder, to marry the mother of, of Jesus. I mean, this woman had angels visit her and talk to her. The birth of Jesus, I mean, was just miraculous in and of its own self. And she's got to be wondering, did, did I miss something? Like, I know that this is going to be hard. I was told I was, there's a prophecy given to her that he's going to be killed. But this is way bigger and way more difficult. Can God really raise him from the dead? Is that even the plan? What does this even mean? I know he talked about it. And then you have the the religious leaders who they are so happy. They're like, Jesus is dead, he's done, he's out of here, we killed him. Like finally this rebel, this nuisance, we're done worrying about him. And meanwhile, Jesus is preaching. Jesus is having a great time. And he is waiting for the Father to raise him from the dead. And then we get to Sunday. It says Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities, meaning this is the spiritual rulers and spiritual authorities, Satan and the kingdom of darkness, And he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So here's what would happen culturally. Um, You go to war and you would win. And then you would take the king or the generals of of the army that lost. you would put them basically in a big parade, and you would shame them and publicly mock them. And here's what's being said, that Jesus is the victor, and that on Sunday, on the resurrection, this was like a big parade where he displayed and shamed Satan for all of the physical and spiritual realm to see. What he thought he was trying to do, Jesus said, you did exactly what I wanted you to do. You killed me because I needed to be sacrificed for the sins of every person who would ever believe in me. They they could not pay the price on their own. And so, Satan, thank you. (laughs) Thank you, like I win, like you lose. And now God the Father resurrects me and raises me to life. And God the Father places Jesus in authority over every angel, demon, nation, king. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And in the resurrection, God the Father is declaring Jesus wins. The resurrection declares he is over every authority on the planet. Three things the resurrection declares and then we'll finish. We got about an hour left, so just hang on. Uh, number one, the resurrection declares that Jesus wins. Listen to this. Paul's preaching to a bunch of non-Christians, and here's what he says. The time of ignorance God overlooked. You, you may never have heard of this. You didn't know about it. Maybe you can you can plead I didn't have knowledge. Here's what he says. But now he commands that's a strong word by the way now he commands all people everywhere to what? Repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness By a man whom he has appointed, and of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The one who has the final say is the leader, has all the authority. The one who judges is Jesus, and Jesus wins, and he, as Revelation says, has the keys to death and to Hades, meaning he controls who dies, and he controls where you go when you die. Jesus is the judge. He is the sentencer. Jesus is the one who determines it. And God declared this for all of creation, physical and spiritual, angels, demons, and humans, dead, not even to be born or whatever. Everybody who would ever live would understand this. Jesus is the king. He rules. Every knee will bow. He wins. He wins. Number two, the resurrection declares, death is not the end. Death is only the beginning. One of, the, one of the saddest thoughts for me, I mean, just what honestly scares me if this would, would actually be true, is that after you die, um, you just cease to exist. That matter is all there is, there's no spiritual realm. And when you close your eyes for the last time, all your particles just disintegrate, go into the ground, and you will never have consciousness ever again. That to me is absolutely petrifying. And you and I, and I look at the resurrection, and here's what Jesus is saying Death is literally not the end, it's just the beginning and that once you die i understand that on this side of it it's one of the most petrifying things but hear me death is a transition to life eternal that life once you're given consciousness as a human being never ever ever ends here's what he says this book of daniel it says those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt There's a little interesting fact about the resurrection that many people don't know. Did you know that every human being who has ever lived will be resurrected? Whether you've loved Jesus or hated Jesus, everybody will get a new body. But here's the difference. If you've trusted in Jesus, you will be in the resurrection of life. And if you've rejected Jesus, you will have a new body and you will be in the resurrection of shame and contempt. I promise you this. There is no other option It's either the resurrection of life or the resurrection of contempt. There is either heaven or there is hell. And it's one of the hardest doctrines the Bible teaches, but if you're gonna read the Bible, you can't get away from it, right? We can try to be nice about it, but it just is what it is and it says what it says. And so these are the two options. And we find that death is only the beginning and some people like to say, I'm just gonna put this off, put this off. You cannot put this off because Jesus controls death and he controls where you go and you don't know the day he is determined to be your final day or the moment that would be your final moment. I love this little tagline that Daniel puts on. Uh, and for those who, are wise, or those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. I want to shine. <laughs> I'll be honest. I don't know what that means, but I want to shine. I don't want to be contemptible. I want to shine and reflect the glory of God. Next verse. In case you think this is just a weird Old Testament thing, here's what Jesus says. Do not marvel at this. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs. How many? All. All who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good, to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, you might be saying, Michael, I thought you said the Bible says it's not by works. You know what the book of John actually teaches over and over again? You know what the good work that Jesus requires for eternal life is? trust. Here's the story. Um, this guy comes up to Jesus and says, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, so give me some grace. Says, hey, I want to go to heaven. He says, okay. And then he says, what good works do I need to do? And Jesus says, here's the good work. You want to go to heaven? Here's the good work that you need to do. Belief. And so the book of John actually frames good works like this. Here is the only good work that you can do that will secure your resurrection to eternal life. Believe in Jesus. That's it. And so the book of John in this context wants to make the, the reader understand this is not about good works outweighing bad works. It never has and never will be. That is not what the Bible teaches. There's not a cosmic scale where you're like, yeah, I was better than most people. The standard is this. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All have rebelled. All deserve hell, which is why Good Friday was such a monumental moment. Because on the cross, Jesus paid for the sins of every human being and your sins can be paid for. Not if you're good, but if you trust in Jesus alone. Death is only the beginning. But we're not done. The Bible keeps going. It's like the Bible wants everybody to know that life begins at death. Here's what he says. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, before Christianity was called Christianity, it was called the way, so, um, which they called a sect, meaning they thought it was a sect of Judaism, and now we call it Christianity. I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. Having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. For those of you who think, you know, I'm just going to put it off and then I can deal with God when I die, not how it works. We have to make a decision now, today, because you don't know when that day is going to come. Number three, Jesus can resurrect souls too. Because Jesus died, and let's just be honest, if he can raise a corpse, give it a heartbeat, and bring new life to it, if he can raise Lazarus from the dead whose body was rotting, can he not heal, fix, redeem, and resurrect your soul? If he can do that, how much more can he do this? Listen to Acts 13. He whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, because Jesus rose from the dead, God is proclaiming, you can have forgiveness of sins through this man, and by him everyone who believes, is it working? Answer is, no, believes, is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from by, the, by the law of Moses. Let me break that down for you. There's religion, and then there's Jesus. And you can try to get whole and right and healed by following rites and rituals and rules and whatnot. It will fail you every single time because what you need is not behavior modification. You need soul resurrection. That's what you need. You are dead inside, and that's why there is so much darkness inside of you. That's why, in secret, you have these secret lives that no one knows about. That's why you are constantly struggling, and you can never quite be the person you want to be on the inside, and much of what happens on the outside is a masquerade. That's why, because you don't just need behavior modification. You need soul resurrection. Religion will never get it for you. Jesus can. And the the, the resurrection is this awesome, huge declaration that, A, Jesus wins— B, death is just the beginning of life. And C, before you die, get resurrected in your soul because if you're not resurrected in your soul, you'll be raised physically to eternal contempt. And I guarantee you this, you do not want to go there. And I guarantee you even this, you will never, ever, ever regret trusting in Jesus. Now, some of you, you hear me because you're new here. Maybe this is your first time. You're like, man, that guy's intense. I'm just, I want to tell you what the Bible says and I get it. I I can't be pretty intense, all right. But here's the point. If what the Bible says is true, how can I not be? If what the Bible says is accurate, how can I stand in front of a bunch of people and say, yeah, Jesus is cool, he's alive, it's a metaphor. No, the Bible teaches that God became flesh and was executed for your sins and mine in our place. And that God the Father validated and vindicated the death of Jesus by raising him from the dead, declaring to everybody he wins. And Satan is publicly made a mockery of. Death is publicly made a mockery of. Our sin is overcome, and we are new in Jesus Christ. Now, you might be looking at your friends who are Christians and be like, they are total hypocrites. And I agree, they are, we are, right? Because the resurrection of your soul now when you trust in Jesus does not mean all of a sudden you're the greatest person that's ever lived. Can I get an amen? Amen. Every Christian who's married, can I get an amen? (laughs) Everyone who has a mom and dad who's a Christian, can I get an amen? (laughs) That's not what it means. What it means is that you are being resurrected and Christ begins to be formed in you. And for the rest of your life, you will watch Jesus grow inside of you. But here's what I expect. I expect that when somebody trusts in Jesus, they're gonna struggle for the rest of their lives. But Here's what I know, I'm not a Christian. I didn't come to Jesus because I'm good. I'm not a pastor, by the way, because I'm like a really good guy. I am a Christian because I'm a sinner. And I am a Christian because my soul was dead and I needed resurrection, and I couldn't do it. I'm a Christian because all the rights and rules and religions of this world fail massively. At the end of the day, I'm a Christian because Jesus is alive, and he promises that one day, what you can't overcome, sin, Satan, and death, I have overcome for you, and I will take you with me. So I want to just look at you and say, if you have never trusted in Jesus, very simply, you will never, ever, ever receive eternal life if you try to work for it. Jesus worked for you. Trust in Jesus. And if you are here today and there is any ounce of you that either wants to ask questions, that wants to talk about this, or who wants to trust in Jesus, please come talk to me. You might be thinking, he's the pastor, he's busy, he's talking to some new person. Kick them, right? Push them over and say, I need to talk about my eternity. They'll live, You'll, you know? Like, and so I just want to, some of you, if you do that, that's going to be hilarious. So... <clears throat> But truly, today is the day. Today is the day because Jesus rose from the dead declaring that he wins and he is the way, the truth, and the life. So that is my prayer for you. If you're, if you're a believer in Jesus, um, today is a day where my desire for you is that your awe and who God is and what he's done for you would just go through the roof. And you would lay your head on your pillow tonight and say, thank you. I am filled with so much gratitude. And so wherever you're at this Easter, this is a beautiful day. This is a day where we get to remember what Jesus did for us and how he rose again from the dead. You know what's cool? Next Sunday, we're going to have another Easter service and the Sunday after that and the Sunday after that. That's why Christians come together because we celebrate that our God is alive every single week. So friends, thank you for worshiping with us. What I'm going to do is pray. Our band is going to come up and we're going to sing a couple songs and we're going to lift high the name of Jesus. And I just want to make very clear one last time, if you have never trusted in Jesus, trust in today. Trust him today. And if you want to do that, literally, I love this, all you need to do is ask God to save you and ask him to forgive you of your sins. It's not a game. It's not a gimmick. There's not like this special mantra. It is so simple. God has promised that anybody who calls in the name of Jesus, anybody who believes in their heart that that Jesus died on the cross for their sins and rose again from the dead, anybody who truly believes that will be saved. And so if you make that decision, come talk to me. And let's take a minute and let's talk to God. I want to encourage you strongly, strongly to trust in Jesus. Father, in these moments as believers remember and rejoice and celebrate, filled with gratitude because you shamed and publicly mocked Satan, sin, and death for our sake, for our benefit. Lord, in these moments, I pray that you would encourage our souls Lord, we all doubt to a degree, and for those who are just struggling with their faith, would you increase their faith? Would you even in these moments by your Holy Spirit just give them that extra measure of reassurance that you are real? This isn't just some game, but that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. God, for every person in this room who does not know what to do with Jesus, I pray just very simply your Holy Spirit would be moving in their hearts. Lord, there's nothing I can do to convince or convict or to make somebody trust in you, but Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would reveal the simple, beautiful truth of who Jesus is and what he's done for them. God, I pray that you would even move some people this morning to trust in you and to make that declaration. And so, Father, as we begin the end of our service, we want to lift high the name of Jesus, and so we love you, we thank you, and we worship you in the amazing, saving, beautiful name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Amen.